If you have a Bible close by, you're going to need it. You can take it out and you can find two different passages, 2 Samuel 22 and 23, as well as 1 Chronicles 28. We're going to end up looking at both of those passages tonight. There are notes available uh, for those of you joining us online. Those can be found at our website or on our Facebook feed, uh, so hopefully you've accessed those. Uh, I don't want to begin with too much uh, morbidity or negativity, but I do want to begin talking about famous last words, famous last words. Uh, the the disclaimer that I'm going to issue when we talk about last words is, um, depending on your sources, uh, last words vary. Person to person, source to source, what did they say last? Uh, these things are notoriously unreliable, so you take these uh, with a grain of salt maybe. First one I'm going to share with you is a man named Joseph Wright. This is pretty interesting. His last word was dictionary. That's unusual. But it's not unusual if you were a linguist and your magnum opus was editing the English dialect dictionary. And that's what Joseph Wright did, and his last word was dictionary. Somebody more familiar to you is Frank Sinatra. Last words, according to some sources, I'm losing it. How about Nostradamus, a French astrologer, physician, seer. He said, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. And apparently he was right that time. I don't know how many other times he said that. He had a reputation of saying a lot of different things, and every now and then they would come true. What about Herman Melville? You maybe heard of Herman Melville, a famous author. His last words were, God bless Captain Veer. And when he said it, nobody knew who that was, after he died, they sorted through the things on his desk. They found a manuscript complete that had never been published, and the hero of that manuscript was Captain Veer. So he was giving them a little clue there. This is one of my favorites. A man named Richard Mellon, his last words were last tag. He had a brother named Andrew, and for 70 years they had played tag. Tag, you're it. And you had to wait till you saw each other another time. Tag, you're it. Back and forth for 70 years. On his deathbed, Richard called to Andrew, asked him to come over, tapped him on the arm and said, last tag. And then he died. Leonardo da Vinci, this one is interesting. He said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Interesting thought. Interesting perspective. How about Ben Franklin, famous, well-known American? Uh, one of his family members was taking care of him on his deathbed, and they said, hey, why don't you roll over? I think you'll be able to breathe a little bit easier if you would roll over. And his last words were, a dying man can do nothing easy. And then he died. Thomas Grasso, not famous, but a convicted murderer, was executed for his crimes. His last words were, I didn't get my SpaghettiOs. I got spaghetti, talking about his last meal. And he said, I want the press to know this. Interesting last words. Pistol Pete Maravich, famous basketball player, collapsed in the middle of a pickup basketball game. People went to check on him, and his last words were, I feel great. Then he died. Sir Winston Churchill, somebody that you have all heard of, his last words echo what you are feeling right now. 
he said, I'm bored with it all. And then he was gone. We could go through lots of different examples. Sometimes last words are very poignant and meaningful. Sometimes they're entirely trivial. At times they may be cryptic and hard to understand until more information is revealed, like Herman Melville. In David's case, his last words are instructive. And tonight we're going to look at David's last words. And we're just going to take a moment to think about what was on David's mind at the end of his life when he spoke these last words. We've come a long way in our study of David. We have started with David the shepherd in Bethlehem, all the way to David fighting Goliath. We've talked about David the fugitive on the run from Saul year after year, month after month, living as a refugee to David the king, first in Hebron and then in Jerusalem. We've talked about David the psalmist, writing beautiful poetry, leading God's people in worship, and we've talked about David committing adultery and murder and conspiracy. This is a remarkable life, and in our point in the study, we've come to the end of that life, and we're talking about David's last words. We'll open with a quote from Eugene Peterson. He says this, As the David story gathers to a conclusion, the voice shifts. The story that's been told about David now has David stepping forward and speaking, no singing, in his own voice. So we listen to his last words and we think, what was on David's mind as he spoke his last words? We're going to look at it on two levels, a a personal level and a public level. So first of all, on a personal level, David's last words were words of worship. They were words of worship. Last words, words of worship. If you have your Bible, look at 2 Samuel 22. You can tell just the way the type is set on the page that this is poetry. Uh, It's a psalm, it's a song uh, of some form or another. We're not going to read the entire thing tonight, but we are going to look at pieces of it. I want to acknowledge two debates surrounding this chapter. First of all, there's a debate about when it was written. And if you just look at verse 1, verse 1 says this, 2 Samuel 22, 1, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. That phrase, from the hand of all his enemies, seems to be retrospective after David has defeated all the peoples around him and looking backward. But that note, delivered from the hand of Saul, seems to be an event that was earlier in David's life. And there's a question about when did he write it? Did he write it early after he found resolution with the situation with Saul? Or did he write it later in life? Is it actually written at the place that falls in the storyline in 2 Samuel here at the end of David's life. Uh, some think it was actually written quite early. People like Charles Swindoll say, no, this was actually the very last poem or the very last song that David wrote. So there's a question there. Related to that question is this question. 2 Samuel 22 is almost word for word identical with Psalm 18. It's almost the exact same content that shows up in two different places in the Bible. You can read later 
and find some of the differences. And uh, Bible scholars argue about which one came first. Uh, was Psalm 18 written first and then maybe edited at the end of David's life? Or was this one written first and maybe an editor took David's work and turned it into Psalm 18? Some of these questions we just we don't have answers to. We can't answer them. We're just not sure and we can argue and debate. And in the argue and the debate, you miss the big, clear, obvious ideas, which on a personal level, David's words, his last words, were words of worship. And I just want to give you a few examples of that. Number one, at the end of his life, David was focused on God. His focus in his last moments in Psalm, uh, excuse me, 2 Samuel 22, his focus was on God. Peterson describes it like this. He says, the single most characteristic thing about David is God. David believed in God. He thought about God. He imagined God. He addressed God. He prayed to God. The largest part of David's existence wasn't David but God. God permeates every aspect of his life, and that's certainly true at the end. His focus is on God. Look at 2 Samuel 22. We'll just read verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. David said, he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you, notice the shift. He's been talking about God, now he's talking to God. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. This is part of what it means for David to be a man after God's own heart. It's not that David has obtained a level of holiness or morality or ethical purity that's so far beyond what anyone else had ever obtained or could ever obtain. It's that David had a consistent Over the long haul of his life, a consistent focus on God. He was thinking about God. He was talking to God. He was living as if God were part of his everyday life. And in these verses, what we just read, David is singing or praying or talking or praising about God. He's talking about God. That should be part of our prayer life. Prayer is not just wishful thinking. It's not just I'm sending good vibes and thoughts. It's talking about God. And David, in the middle of it, at the end of verse 3, he shifts and he talks directly to God. Prayer and praise include both of those things. Singing and praying and talking about God and singing and praying and talking to God. This is a pattern you see throughout the Bible. And when you start to see this pattern over and over and over, that God's people, the people who know God and have a relationship with God and love God, they sing and they talk and they pray about him and to him. You detect this pattern, you walk away saying, that's probably how I ought to pray. In my prayers, I ought to talk about who God is and I ought to talk directly to God. When we gather together as a church and we sing songs of worship, they should probably be songs that aren't really about us, but that are actually about God. And they should be songs that don't lift us up on a pedestal, but songs that actually address God in prayer and praise and in worship. 
He's focused on God here at the end of his life. You see the same thing in 2 Samuel 23, verse 1 to 7. I'll let you read it on your own. Those words are actually described as the last words of David. 2 Samuel 23, 1, the last words of David. And he's talking consistently about God and how God has impacted his life and the things God has done in his life. And you come away from those last words of David and you say, David realizes just how small and insignificant he is and he realizes how great and powerful and mighty God is. So at the end of his life, his focus was on God. Secondly, at the end of his life, David viewed his own life through a biblical filter. And I'm gonna explain to you as best I can what what I'm driving at here. But David, looking back in retrospect, is viewing his life through a biblical filter. Take your Bible, 2 Samuel 22. Look at some of the phrases that you find beginning in verse 5 and going down for about the next 15 verses or so. Verse 5 talks about the waves of death and the torrents of destruction. Verse 7, he's calling in distress. He's calling to God and God hears him. Verse 8, the earth is reeling and rocking and the foundations of the heavens are trembling and quaking. Verse 9, smoke goes up from his nostrils in a devouring fire. Verse 10, he bowed the heavens and he came down. Verse 11, he rode on a cherub and he flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. Darkness was his canopy with thick clouds. Verse 14, he thundered from heaven. Here's here's what's fascinating about all these things David is saying. You go back and read the life of David, you never find a scenario where David experienced those things. What you actually find is all of the language he uses from about verse 5 down to verse 20 is language pulled directly from the book of Exodus when Moses is describing how God saved his people from Egypt. And David, in this moment, as he looks back on his life, he's not just describing the things that he personally experienced, but he's describing what God's people experienced, and he's talking about it as if he actually lived through it. It's almost as if he's reading the Bible, and he just finds himself completely immersed in the Bible. It's almost, about, almost like he's reading about these old stories about Moses and Egypt and the Exodus, and he actually starts to think that story involves him in some level. Here's a personal example of this. In college, a friend uh, encouraged me, and I read the Lord of the Rings trilogy by Tolkien. And I had never read these books, and the movies weren't out yet at that time, and so I dug into these books, and I just I absolutely loved them. Many of you have... Seen the movies, some of you have probably read the books, but I'm just going to tell you my nerdy, geeky experience reading these books for the very first time. I'm a college student, I'm learning lots of new things in in all my classes, and I'm picking up these books and I'm reading them, and Tolkien is talking to me about elves and dwarves and hobbits and wizards, and he's not just telling me that these people exist, but he's talking to me about the history of all of these groups of people. Uh, He's talking to me about the languages and the culture 
of all of these groups of people. He's describing it in great detail. They all have their own alphabet and songs and poems and history and heroes and stories. And I'm reading these stories. I got so wrapped up mentally in what I was reading on the, on the page in these fictional stories that when I put the book down, I would find myself in my spare moments thinking, how have I never heard these stories? And in my mind, in those unguarded moments, I wasn't thinking, how have I never heard of Lord of the Rings? I was thinking, how in all of my history classes did I never learn about the elves? How did I never find out about the wizards and the dwarves and the wars and the, and the gold and all the intrigue? And, the, and my mind just sort of shifted into this mode of believing that these things really were true. And that maybe somehow I fit into that story. That's the detail that he describes all of these things in, in the books. Here's what I'm saying to you. David is having that experience with the Bible. The only difference is he's not reading a fairy tale, and I mean that in a positive sense, a good sense. He's reading the history of God's people. And he's reading about what God did in bringing his people out of slavery from Egypt. And he just starts to think, those are my people. This is my story. I wasn't there when it happened, but God hasn't changed. And the things that he did back then, he can still do today. And I'm living in a relationship with the God who saved those people from Egypt. Look, I realize when you read the Bible, you're reading about, in some sense, ancient history. In my personal Bible reading this morning, I, I read through the end of the kings the end of Second Chronicles and this king was good and this king was bad and this king was good and this king was worse and this king was okay for a while. I wasn't there with those guys to see it. I can just read about it. We weren't there with Moses or David or Shadrach or Meshach and Abednego and Daniel. We weren't there with the disciples following Jesus around. We weren't there with Paul on his missionary journeys when he would go preach and uh, he would either spark a revival or a revolt in each city. But when we read those stories in the Bible, we begin to realize this is our story. The God that's acting on these pages is our God. No, David wasn't there when God brought his people out in the Exodus, but David looked back on that story, and he might as well have been there. So close was his relationship with the Lord. Moving on, at the end of David's life, he acknowledged God's transformative grace. Transformative grace. And initially, I just had the word grace in there, but I think the word transformative is important for the point that we're trying to make. I want you to look at 2 Samuel 22, verse 21. David says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes, I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. How is it possible 
that the man who had an affair with the wife of one of his best friends was fighting a war on his behalf and then tried to cover up that affair by murdering that man in cold blood, dragging his general into the conspiracy in the process, could say those things. How is it possible that the man who could have such broken relationships with his wives, plural, and his children, so that his children rebelled against him at times and tried to overthrow their father as king, how could that man who failed in so many ways say what he says here? Two thoughts. One, we look at these dark episodes in David's life, and we have to remind ourselves they are dark, but they were episodes. They were photographs, as it were, from a a small slice of David's life. But if you pull back the curtain and you look not just at the photograph, but the whole movie reel of David's life, a different picture, a different pattern emerges. Are there dark days and bad scenes and wickedness and rebellion and failure, there's all of that, and we haven't sugar-coated any of it. But the big, broad picture of David's life is somebody who loved the Lord and followed the Lord. I would also direct your attention to verse 32, 2 Samuel 22, verse 32. David says, Who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. That's an important confession on David's part. And it helps you understand what he just said about righteousness and obedience and being blameless and not forsaking the Lord. He comes down, and in verse 33, he says, Listen, God is my refuge, not my own obedience, not my own morality. God is my refuge, and he is the one who has made my way blameless. Peterson is helpful in his explanation. He says, the David story is a gospel story. It's God doing for David what David could never do for himself, a sinner saved. And we might add, a sinner transformed. So that the overall pattern of David's life, as dark as individual episodes might be, is this was a man after God's own heart. And it wasn't because his heart was so good and pure and righteous It was because, verse 33, God, David's refuge, made his way blameless. Next, at the end of David's life, David recognized that God was part of every aspect of his life. There was no part of David's life that God didn't have some impact on, some effect on. It's strange for us to look down at verse 35 and read David saying about God, he trains my hands for war. If we prayed that sort of stuff on a Sunday morning, that would make a lot of people uncomfortable. He trains my hands for war. God made me a good soldier. It sounds strange to us, but it didn't sound strange to David. David looked back on his life and a major part of his life was war. And David didn't look back and say, God was involved in all my Sabbaths and all my worship, but war was real life. David looked back on his life and he said, God was involved in all of it. 
every day, every moment. It wasn't strange to David. What would be strange to David is the American idea that God has something to do with our Sundays and our Wednesday nights, but not with the rest of the time we spend on social media, not with the rest of the time we're at work, not with the rest of the time where we're at leisure, not with the rest of the time that we're bored at home on quarantine. We as Americans tend to segregate God out and we say, yes, God is sort of what we do in this place at this time or on this Facebook page at this time. That's God's area. Everything else is real life. And David just reminds us as he talks about God and his involvement in all of his fighting and the wars and the battles, God is part of every aspect of life. One last thought. At the end of his life, David trusted in God's promise to send a Messiah. To send a Messiah. If you look over at 2 Samuel 23, verse 5, David talks about God making an everlasting covenant with him. That covenant goes back to to 1 Samuel 7, where David receives this covenant, or 2 Samuel 7, excuse me, where David receives this covenant from the Lord, and God promises, I'm going to build you a house. You're going to have somebody from from your line, from your family, that's going to sit on the throne forever. If you look at verse 20, or excuse me, chapter 22, verse 51, David talks about great salvation he brings to his king, and he shows steadfast love to his anointed David and his offspring forever. That word anointed is the Hebrew word that we would translate Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. And he's saying, in a small sense, little m, I am the Messiah. I'm the anointed one of God. But in acknowledging that, there's also an acknowledgement that David's offspring is going to receive these things and experience these things as well. David doesn't have a face that he's picturing. He doesn't have a name to put with it. He doesn't have a date or a place to tag along with it. But he's talking about Jesus. God made a covenant with me. He's going to send the anointed one. So, on a personal level, David's talking about worship. What about on a public level? Well, on a public level, David's last words were words of worship. That's not a mistake. His words of worship. Personally, he's worshiping, and publicly, he's also worshiping. So take your Bible and flip over to the right, look at First Chronicles, First Chronicles chapter 28. You can actually back up later on your own, and you can read chapter 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. David is giving instruction about how to structure corporate worship in Israel. He's giving instruction to Solomon. This is how you need to build the temple. This is how you need to organize the Levites. This is how you need to organize the gatekeepers. This is how you need to organize the priests. This is how you need to organize the singers and the musicians. He's giving all of these instructions. And you first read those chapters, I'll just be honest with you, it sounds like micromanagement. You want to say, David, you got to take your hands off this thing. You're dying. you got to give it to Solomon. It reads like a corporate flow chart. 
That's about how exciting it is at points. He's just telling you, divide them up like this, and this is when they do this, and here's where they go, and everyone does this, and you think, why do I need to know this? Solomon needed to know it because David was going to die, and Solomon was going to be the one to lead the nation in corporate worship. And David's instructing him, this is how the people of God ought to worship. I want to show you one specific. Look at 1 Chronicles 28. Let's read the first four verses. It says, David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes, the officers of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the stewards of all the property and livestock of the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men, and all the seasoned warriors. So he's getting the whole band together. Verse 2, then King David rose to his feet and said, hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God and I made preparations for building. And when David says that, I can just picture some of his kids and grandkids rolling their eyes and saying, here we go, we've heard this before. Every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, every Easter, we hear how David, great-grandfather David or, or grandfather David, he wanted to build this temple and he made all of these preparations. We've heard this one before. It, it reads, not surprisingly, like an old man looking back on his life and saying something that was very important to him, to the people that he cares about. He rose to his feet. He said, hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God, and I made preparations for a building. Look at verse 3. But, but, as a painful word for David, he had a good and a godly plan to build this temple. But, God said to me, you may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. He had a plan. It was a good plan. It was a godly plan. It was a plan that would come to fruition just after David was dead and buried. But he didn't get to be part of it. You read verse 3 where it says, But God said to me, the question to you and the question to me is, what will your response be when you have plans and you think they're good plans and you think they're godly plans and God says, no? How do you respond? Do you curl up in a ball and cry? Shake your fist at the heavens and curse God for having a different plan than you had? How will you respond? How did David respond? David was committed to worship even when life didn't go as he planned. He was committed to worship even when life didn't go as he planned. So verse 3, David's got this plan, 
But God said to me, you may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and you have shed blood. Verse 4, what will come next? Yet, yet, yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. So he just stops and he says, wait a minute. I didn't get to build the temple. That wasn't part of God's plan. It was my plan, but not God's plan. And he stops and he looks back and he says, David, you have no reason to feel upset. You have no reason to feel entitled or offended. He tells himself, he reminds himself, and he reminds his family, it was God who chose me to be the king. I didn't become king on my own. It wasn't my intellect. It wasn't my power. It wasn't my, my charisma. God made that decision. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. He chose Judah as a leader. And in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. He had a plan. God said, but you're not the one to do it. And David didn't just end the story there. He said, yet I need to remember, God is the one who has brought me this far. God's the one who made me the king. God's the one who pulled me out of obscurity. God's the one who exalted me over my brothers, over all the others in the tribe of Judah. He set me up as king. All of that is God's doing. And David rejoiced in it. And he worshipped in it. Look, we've, we've started the evening talking about last words. We've seen an example in David of somebody who comes to the end of his life and he's worshipping. Personally, he's committed to worship. Publicly, he's leading the people to worship even after he's gone. He's leading the people to worship even when God doesn't meet all of their plans and expectations. And the question for us as we look at this last episode or one of these last episodes from David's life is, how do we finish our race? And if we want to end up like David and we want it to be said of us that in our last days with our dying breath we were people committed to worship, if that's where we want to end, what do we need to be doing today? And I think the answer is simple. We need to be committed to be men and women who are chasing after God's heart. We need to view our lives through a biblical filter. We need to be so immersed in the storyline of Scripture that we really believe this is our story. This is our God. The things that he was doing then have impact on me today. We celebrate God's grace, grace that saves us and grace that transforms us. Grace that saves us from our sin and grace that transforms us into people who are obedient and righteous. Righteous. We need to be people who say, God, you've got to be part of every aspect of my life. It's not enough for me to have you on Sundays. It's not enough for me to tack on a Wednesday night or a ladies' Bible study during the week or a devotion for five minutes when I wake up in the morning. God, you have got to be part of my life every moment of every day. We've got to be people committed to worship, not just when everything is normal and convenient and we can sit in this room together and it's all as we're used to it being, but even when it's inconvenient, 
even when we can't all be in this room, even when we have to log on through the internet, even when it's hard to gather your family together on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning and sit down in the living room and be involved and be engaged in corporate worship, we must be people who worship even when things don't go as planned. So there's a beautiful picture of David at the end of his life in these last words, these dying words of a man committed to worship. And we pray that that would be true of us.